Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo mom. Congenital heart defects, especially in children, is a difficult diagnosis for the entire family. Some heart defects are simple and don't need treatment, while others may require several surgeries performed over a period of several years. Today, we'll discuss treatment options for congenital heart defects and what families can do to find support. You're not alone and it can feel like you're alone, especially if the diagnosis is new and can feel very daunting, but there are many families out there who are not just dealing with congenital heart disease, they're thriving with it. These kids are incredibly resilient. They are so much stronger than I think even sometimes we give them credit for and they get through it, they really do. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Mackey and welcome to Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we will be talking about congenital heart disease, including what are some new treatment options and how parents can prepare for their child's medical journey. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Elizabeth Stevens, a pediatric cardiovascular surgeon here at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Dr. Stevens, thank you so much for coming back and joining us again today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, you were on before, and um, I'm excited to have you back again. Um, as we get started, I would love to um, really have you explain to patients, like, what's new, um, and maybe talk a little bit more about how we got to the point where we're at in, in this field of um, congenital cardiovascular surgery. Um, well, that's a great question, and I, I think it is very helpful to look back before we look forward. Um, this actually is a pretty new specialty. Um, 1950s was really when the first uh, very simple congenital heart defects could actually be repaired, and that was because of the development of the heart-lung machine, and Mayo was very involved in that. So 1955, their first BSD, which is a hole in the heart, was repaired here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Kirkland was uh, pioneer in that regard. They used engineers to develop a heart-lung machine, um, which in the previous several years had not been successful in other cities in the country by other experts. Um, so in the 50s, if you wanted to have um, your child uh, have a repair, uh, people were coming from all over the world, all over the country to Mayo for that. Um, Dr. Lillehigh at University of Minnesota was using cross-circulation, which is when the parent actually served as the the heart-lung machine or enabling uh, someone to work on the heart while um, the patient was asleep. And then with the success of the heart-lung machine at Mayo, that took over. So it's really, you know, even my parents' generation, if you were born with a congenital heart um, defect, there wasn't hope for that. There was minimal that you can do. But these days, you know, our heart-lung machines have gotten so much more um, uh, robust. And what we've learned about that has um, really enabled us to do now much more complex lesions and uh, really help a, a whole uh, generation of, of people that previously didn't have uh, that option. Let's get started talking about what's new on the horizon for treatment um, for congenital heart diseases, because there's some really exciting things happening in your field. Yeah, I think that it is a very exciting time and most of the uh, really novel things related to the catheter-based intervention. So those are um, procedures that interventional cardiologists do. So if you have a child or a family member who's looking um, to have um, management of congenital heart disease, you wanna be at a program that has a very strong catheter-based team who also works really well with the surgeons. And that can be a little unusual. Um, thankfully at Mayo, we are really strong in that regards, but it's a synergistic relationship. So 
we look at each individual patient and their management strategy is often a combination of these um, either catheter-based or we often use the term hybrid procedures and the open surgical procedures. So sometimes there's an interventional procedure that precedes the surgery. Sometimes it's something done together and sometimes it's that, that I do something that then prepares them for years down the line having a catheter-based intervention. Um, so the two main uh, things you could talk about a number of them, but two main things are something called PDA stent and PFRs. And these both relate to controlling the blood flow to the lungs. So one of the common situations we have with babies and kids with congenital heart disease is either their uh, flow to the lungs is too much or too little. And so we either need to increase it or decrease it. So PDA stent is, uh, it's been around for a few years now. It's a stenting of the ductus arteriosus, which is a way that a baby, when they're first born, their lungs get blood. Now, normally that closes when you, after you're born, but you can put a stent in it to keep it open to provide um, uh, consistent blood flow to the lungs. And that is something that does, it has quite a learning curve in terms of interventional cardiologists. Thankfully, we're uh, quite experienced with that there. And then you also need a surgeon who's comfortable with dealing with stents later uh, and the repercussions of that. So that's one of the newer interventions and it replaces some of the shunts that we used to do surgically. And then the second would be something called PFRs and that's pulmonary flow regulators. And Mayo's actually been very involved in in this, this is a newer technology and, um, uh, that has just uh, reached the US, um, Mayo's extensive experience, and it decreases the pulmonary blood flow. So patients who are getting too much blood to the lungs, they get wet lungs, they breathe quickly, they have trouble gaining weight. Um, mm -hmm. And we used to have to do pulmonary artery bands, which is a, a procedure done through the chest. And now we are able in certain circumstances to put these devices. But again, these are often in, uh, conjunction uh, and often before having their full repair, but it, it allows a lot of options for our babies who are, uh, in particular, who are coming uh, with congenital heart disease. Mm -hmm. And a lot of options, it seems like, that are so much more minimally invasive because um, these little these little babies have a lot to face in their life. And if you yeah. can minimize that exposures, I mean, that's amazing. Um, what do you think is like next for the field? So these are kind of the new, very new things that um, are obviously advancing the health of children overall, but I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's in early stages of research. Sure. I think there's so many things that you could go uh, to mm -hmm. talk about with that. I, it spans from our imaging ability, um, which has increased so much over the last 10 years, but will continue to increase. Mm -hmm. um, fetal imaging um, will continue to get better. Um, so the, the imaging is, is important for us in our preparation, um, and that will continue to be, I think, monitoring and particularly remote monitoring. So we've learned over the last 10 to 15 years, in particular patients, that um, the ability to monitor them specifically uh, between uh, two surgeries, but mm -hmm. also in other contexts has really improved our outcomes. But I think that in in the future will become something that'll become standard and really improve care so that we're monitoring them and noticing things before things um, get to an acute level. And I think um, AI will be really important. Now we have particularly our patients who are in the hospital and in ICU care, we have so much data in blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, data in terms of the labs, data in terms of even temperature of their toes, which you know a nurse you know, would evaluate, but now mm -hmm. you can actually put a number to it and that relates to things like SVR. So um, now that we have all this data, there's ongoing work to try to 
um, use uh, basically machine learning to figure out, can you look at all that and in a given physiology, figure out when they're starting to not do so well. So it's before they start to get really sick so that we have a warning and we can reverse things. So there's ongoing research regarding that. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing is, which you know, in some ways COVID has advanced is um, our virtual medicine and be able, being able to take care of patients and their families while they remain at home or in their setting. So, you know, at Mayo, we have people coming from all over um, the country and the world for care. Well, during COVID, we're doing more and more virtually. And I think that'll just expand so that we can provide as much as we can with the patient in their home setting. Um, and then for limited periods, you know, come for the surgical intervention or things like that. So I think that will definitely become, uh, especially with things like these mobile devices that can monitor things that will become more standard of care and enable us to help more people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's very, very exciting for information. I think, you know, just how much um, artificial intelligence has advanced medicine and continues to do so is just very exciting for people like us that kind of geek out on, on new technology. So yeah. Um, Many caregivers might be wondering what the whole process is like. Um, maybe they just are listening to us and they just had a prenatal diagnosis of their child having some um, type of congenital heart disease lesion um, and wondering what to expect through this whole process of raising their child. Um, you'd mentioned earlier, like prenatal echocardiography. So I think we should start with the prenatal period. Um, and and what would what does that look like? Who will they meet with? What kind of extra imaging would they need? That's a great question. Um, and uh, something that I get asked often, but it's, it's always good to hear ahead of time or as you're going through it for um, uh, to to better calm calm the anxiety, which mm -hmm. I, you know it's natural to be there. Um, so I think in in the setting of talking through kind of the process, uh, sometimes helpful to have a specific lesion. So tetralogy of Fallot, if we use that example, is a is a pretty common congenital heart disease lesion. Thankfully, it's very treatable. Um, that has a hole in the heart, a VSD, and also um, decreased flow to the lungs. So the pulmonary valve in the area to the lungs is, is smaller than normal. So let's just, for, for example purposes, take that. If, um, and that is something that's commonly uh, being able to be picked up on fetal ultrasound because not all lesions are, because of our limitations, you are able to see. Um, so if you get a, a diagnosis of tetralogy of flow, Below during your fetal ultrasound, you'll be able to see some specific factors, including how small that area is that leads to the lungs. So we get an idea of um, what we think the anatomy is going to look like when the baby's born, but it is, it's kind of a blurred picture. So I wouldn't, our, um, our ability to predict at that point is limited. Um, they will give you advice as far as where to deliver and timing of delivery and things like that. So this is something that's managed with your OB team, your MFM team, and a pediatric cardiologist who has special training in fetal ultrasounds. Uh, and you often will meet with a surgeon before the baby's born. And that's, it's not to, um, it's actually designed to give um, a familiar face mm -hmm. some um, context and some expectations because you will be, that is a lesion that does require surgery. So at least you have met someone and talked through some of that before the delivery and things like that. So once you've been counseled on the delivery and the delivery in part, we wanna make sure that the baby is safe as soon as they're is born. So you wanna make sure you have the appropriate resources if needed. Um, and one of the common things for tetralogy patients is they may need a medication called PGE. So they would need um, very soon after birth, uh, a 
ability to give IV medication. Um, and you want to be in a center in case um, you do need something done early that you have a surgical and cardiology ability to do that. So they'll help advise where you should deliver um, and timing of delivery. We do try to, um, for most lesions, have the, the delivery be vaginal if that's um, uh, what is from the MFM team is, is reasonable. And we generally try to get um, the babies closer to term if possible because um, heart disease, if you need intervention, is best if you're closer to term um, when, you, when the baby's born. Once the baby's born, now this is the first time that we get a really good look at the anatomy. So they'll repeat the ultrasounds. We'll be able to see much more clearly what we're doing with in terms of anatomy. They may ask for further testing like a CT scan or something like that. Um, they may also, in certain circumstances, if there are other things that they notice on the baby, they may have some genetic testing that just depends. And once we have that information, then you meet again with the cardiologist and the surgeon. And at that point, for many of the, most of the tetralogy babies, you're looking at being able to go home, have a baby who's feeding normally, who's hopefully growing and meeting milestones, but is being monitored by a cardiologist. And in general, it's... Um, anywhere from like three to six months. It does depend on the specific anatomy that you would be coming back for what's called an elective surgery. So that means there, that it was planned ahead, it was scheduled ahead. There wasn't a sense of urgency that the patient was getting sick or something like that. Um, there are a few tetralogy patients where their uh, saturations or their amount of oxygen in their blood has gotten low and then they might be brought into the hospital to evaluate and may come to an earlier surgery. And some, a, a small number might need a stage surgery. So they might need help with getting their oxygen saturations up with something like a, a shunt and then get their full repair. But most tetralogy babies are able to make it to the elective repair. And then for tetralogy in particular, if you're talking about the long-term um, consequences of living and caring for a patient with uh, tetralogy, they have an excellent prognosis. They can go to regular school. They can be involved in sports that they would like. We have um, some, I think Sean White is a, a tetralogy patient, if I remember correctly, he's yeah. an Olympic gold medalist. Um, so you can, they can be involved in all those types of activities. And mm -hmm. that is going to vary depending on the specific heart disease. But many of them are, are like that, where they, if they want to do sports, they can do sports and, and they should be able to keep up with their peers and things like that. Um, tetralogy is one of the lesions where they often will need something later in life. Hopefully it's much later and as a, more of an adult. And often these days we're actually doing interventional cardiology. It's usually the pulmonary valve. Again, that specific um, is gonna be specific to the heart lesion. So it is really helpful to learn about that. Like, are, am I gonna expect to need uh, my child to have another operation? And sometimes they're staged operations that we plan ahead of time. Other times we say, you know, we, we think you'll just need one operation and that's it. And others like tetralogy, we think there's often one early and then an intervention often much later. So getting a sense of that and what to expect in terms of quality of life and what they're able to do. Um, again, always good to discuss with your cardiologist and your surgeon, um, but that's kind of a, a, for tetralogy, that's in general what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really helpful. You know, when families first get that diagnosis, I know as a parent with my my own children, um, when they were diagnosed with something, I my first thought was, did I do something to cause this? Sure. Um, and I, I guess just for all the moms out there, what how would you respond to that? I think that's a, I'm really glad you brought that up because what that's something that, especially when I'm having the fetal consult, I really try to, to 
reassure the parents that there's this isn't something related to to what you did or didn't mm -hmm. do. Um, uh, there are very few um, genetic, uh, specific genetically linked um, congenital heart uh, disease. They're extremely, among the many patients we see, that's very mm -hmm. rare. So usually this is something that is, um, often we don't even have a specific genetic cause. It's, it's uh, something that happened during the fetal development, but we, we don't even understand exactly what triggered that. Uh, so nothing that, you know, you, I think I see a lot of moms who take it upon themselves, mm -hmm. but really that isn't the case. Yeah, that's, I think, really reassuring for families to hear. And genetics will probably be some part of the value evaluation in mm -hmm. some cases. Um, is that right? But that's not, true. not uh -huh. all the time. Okay. Yes, that's true. And it does depend on the specific um, mm -hmm. congenital heart disease. And um, when we do have um, genetics, uh, their input is always uh, is helpful, but oftentimes it, it um, can be more related to that the fact that those um, some of the specific heart defects are also linked with some other you know mm -hmm. kidney defects or other things within the body, uh, yeah. but not so much being passed down. I think that's really helpful to hear. So obviously we're, we're speaking with you as a surgeon. Um, and so in patients that do have congenital heart disease lesions that will need some type of surgical repair, let's talk about how families can help prepare themselves for this, especially, yeah. and then also help prepare their child. A lot of times the, the children are too young to necessarily know what's going on if they're a young infant. But um, why don't you start by t talking about how parents can prepare themselves as a caregiver for this um, really, really stressful situation? I'm actually glad you started with the caregiver because so often it goes, um, the attention immediately goes to the patient, which, you know, we will have all sorts, you know, our whole team concentrating on the patient, but it right. can be really hard to remind the parents that if you're not able to really take some time to take care of yourself, you won't be able to be there and be present for your child. Right. And, you know, yes, it's a very acute time, but we have people like, I'm on call 24 seven, <laughs> you know, the nursing staff, is, there's someone literally in the room mm -hmm. in the ICU 24 seven, there's mm -hmm. monitors everywhere like this we have, and this is an opportunity to, I know it takes trust, but to, to let some other people take care of your child so that you do mm -hmm. get some sleep and things like that. And that's very hard, I think, for a lot of parents to work yeah. through, but uh, otherwise you, they just you see how it wears on the, the parents. So I think um, there are several things. Um, one of the most helpful things that I've found is beforehand setting expectations. And so that can start with the day of surgery. So asking some specific questions like, how am I gonna be updated during the surgery? And that can be a variety of, of manners, but knowing that ahead of time, knowing kind of a timeline, like I often tell the parents, like you're gonna go back at this time. It takes us a while to get our lines in so you won't, uh, hear about the surgery started till about this time. So having that kind of in your head that, okay, this is going to be the anesthesia prep time. And this is the time when we're on the heart lung machine. Then I'm going to get, you know, be informed that we're off and doing well. And I expect to see my child in mid afternoon or whatever that, you know, looks like, then you have it in your head of what the day is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, asking specifically how the patient is going to appear. So is the breathing tube still going to be down? Is the patient going to be medically asleep? Or is the breathing tube going to be out and they'll be kind of drowsy and they'll see a bunch of IV bags, kind of preparing in your mind what that's going to look like so it doesn't seem too startling. Um, and then I think to think about who, who you want to be waiting with and where. So sometimes that's in the hotel with other loved member, uh, family members. Um, 
activities during that time. So I've had um, families do jigsaw puzzles so that there's something that you're kind of actively doing that doesn't take a lot of, you know, uh, mental energy, but maybe gets your mind or FaceTiming with other family members who aren't in town with you, things like that, so that it doesn't feel like a, a void, um, but you have some ideas of what will be helpful. Um, and then saying goodbye to, or saying, um, giving kisses to the patient before the surgery, um, that can be a stressful time. And I think uh, one thing that's really helpful is we give a, something called a pre-med to our, um, to our children before they go back to the OR. And what that does is um, it makes them a little drowsy, but it also means that they don't recall from that point on, and then they'll, they'll be awake when they start waking up after the anesthesia wears off. But that can be really helpful to give all your kisses, get the uh, medication in, and then the, the child is going off uh, with our OR team who takes very good care of them, but they're, they're not gonna recall that. They'll remember being with mommy and daddy or the guardians or whoever, and, and then getting the medication. So that can be a really helpful because that can be a hard um, part for family. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's a good way to kind of work through it. Um, and then for the patient. So if, they're, uh, if it's a baby, some of the good things about that is they will not recall really the surgery or being in the hospital, things like that. So that can be very helpful. Um, I understand that I get a lot of times comments about oh, well, he or she's so young or so little, or, you know, we are trained to work on very tiny babies, even premature babies. And so although that seems very daunting, mm -hmm. um, just rest assured that everybody's prepared for small babies. That's part of, part of our practice. Um, and then as far as what to bring, so binkies that they like, blankies, stuffed animals, we'll have them right there as the anesthesia starts to wear off. All the other stuff, the diapers, the formula, the bottles, we all, we have all those. So it would be specific things that they, that are comforting to them mm -hmm. um, would be helpful. And then um, clothes with um, snaps are usually easier um, uh, because they're going to be some drainage tubes and things like that. For older children, um, uh, a few things. Child life is super helpful in, in prepping um, the child and talking through things. We do often, well, pre-COVID, we did a tour so you can meet the staff, you would meet the physician assistants, you'd meet the nursing. They, that really helped um, just to see where you're going to be and meet some of the people. Um, and then bringing favorite toys is always helpful. Um, some people will bring in pictures of their dog or something like that, or like grandma, grandpa, who isn't going to be visiting with them. Um, and then favorite clothes as they recover, they'll be able to kind of wear some of their own clothes. So if they have some favorite jammies or favorite baseball hat or things like that. And then we do have a number of um, patients who um, may have some anxiety or maybe even some mental health issues or uh, uh, be a little um, uh, harder to comfort um, and be dealing with anxiety. So um, we have a lot of um, medications actually available to us when they're in the hospital that can help with that. So we do, we do um, handle uh, patients with a variety of um, anxiety or other uh, types of issues really related to that um, quite well. But I would say if there's specific things that are comforting to your child to please um, help our staff know how to help them. So some parents will, will give us some specific tips of what makes them nervous, what um, comforts them. And that really helps our staff so that we know how to help 
help uh, your child. I commonly get, get asked that I'm being worried about pulling stuff out, which mm-hmm. um, is, a, is a clearly a concern that you know I understand. Thankfully, our nursing staff are very creative and are, are very good at making sure that things that need to stay in, stay in. But um, mm-hmm. that's a common question I get. Yeah, yeah. I would say the level of care provided from, you know, inception at the very beginning throughout is just fantastic. And you guys really get to know your patients and families um, and your nursing staff and the care coordinators and everyone is just so intimately involved in helping these patients and families through their journey. Yeah, we're often following them for years for various things, even if it's, you know, not that they need another surgery, but to look at things. So yeah, yeah, they become our family. Yeah, they absolutely do. Um, We just at the end of our time here, just kind of parting words, what recommendations would you give to families for support? Um, you talked about family. Um, is there any other external organizations or um, other ways that they can find support amongst other caregivers as well that have gone through a similar process? That's a great question. There are a lot of um, groups online um, and through there are a number of patient um, organizations. Um, so I've, I know a number of moms are will be chatting with other moms with similar mm-hmm. um, conditions or if they might have a child with a syndrome and so they can get some ideas regarding that. Um, the, I think that can be very, very helpful for many um, people because you're not alone and it can feel like you're alone, especially if the diagnosis is new and mm-hmm. Um, you know, it can feel very daunting, but there are many families out there who are not just dealing with congenital heart disease, they're thriving with it. They're like, their kids, they're incredible. These kids are incredibly resilient and they, Mm -hmm. I mean, they give me hope. They cheer me up when I'm having a bad day. They're just incredible. And sometimes we think, oh gosh, I can't, I don't think my child can handle that or can't get through that. They are so much stronger than I think even sometimes we give them credit for and they get through it. They really do. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're here to help them as and have the families as much as we can, but, um, it can, can seem scary. Um, but as you start to go through it, you'll see just how strong these kids are and just how much support you have around um, you. But at first it, it can seem overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, uh, Dr. Stevens. This, this was fantastic. And thank you yeah. for all the wisdom you shared. Oh, it's my pleasure. Please reach out if we can help in any way. I'm happy to. Excellent. Thank you everyone who listened. Um, Remember, please stay safe this winter, wear your mask and make sure your vaccines are up to date, including your COVID vaccine and your influenza vaccine this winter season. Have a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.